Welcome everyone, welcome. It's the Simon Dan podcast, episode 33. It's the place where science and conspiracy collide. Thank you so much for joining us. Hope you're well. Uh, joining me again this week is my Everlaw co-host. He is now affectionately known as the Flat Earth Whisperer, but not for the reasons you think. It's Cats. Hello, mate. Oh, you right? I got the jingle. I'm great. I yeah. got the jingle this week. Mate. I remembered I it. Absolutely. I remembered oh. the jingle. Yeah. How you doing, mate? You okay? Yeah, I'm uh, really, really good. Really looking forward to today. Really. Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. Really pumped. Ugh, let's do it. Yeah, definitely. Um. So just a quick one. Um. So it's episode 33. Now I don't know if you get a lot of comments on your channel. Uh. You know, like the gematria stuff that the the numbers mm. and letters. They always say Simon Dan equals 33, and for some reason that's bad. It's. Do you ever get that? I get it all the time because Conspiracy Cat's the name of the channel. Is CNC that... equals three and three. Does it? I'm never, oh. I'm, yeah, I'm never really sure what the uh, what the point of, of I don't that know. is. It's, but, uh, I'm I sure it's, it's nice to I'm, get mail. Yeah, I'm sure it's something bad though because they always come up like it's, you know it's like there's something to have NASA it comes to thirty three as well and uh, I think they've come up with a couple of astronauts that equals thirty three. I've got a video coming out. Uh, what do you? I'm ruining the magic of podcasting here. A video came out yesterday uh, from my channel uh, all about that. Uh, the science of Dramatra and a guy called Mark Leeds, which we'll talk about in a minute. But should we get our guest on? Let's do it. Yeah, brilliant. So joining us this week is a comedian, author and general science enthusiast. He's one half of the popular podcast, The Infinite Monkey Cage presenting team. It's Robin Ince. Welcome and thank you for joining us. Hello, that's interesting because NASA, I think, is also, if, if you if you do the the full version of it becomes 666, Does it? It, as far as I remember. Or, yeah, and, I, and I think in in counting out the uh, the, the positions in, in the alphabet, and Walt Disney's signature has three sixes in it as well, uh, according to uh, popular conspiracy theories. You might have covered all of this already. In well, previous- no, we haven't, but I do. there is different versions, isn't there, of the numbers thing? So I do know that. There's like a full one and a short one. Uh, but 33 seems to be worse. So this video that I come out is a guy called Marty Leeds, okay, and he came up with the theory that there's 88 pianos on a, uh, 88 keys on a piano, and because we use our hands to play them, he got the number 88, divided it by the 28 phalange bones in our fingers, which comes to almost pi, which is why it's called a piano. Brilliant. <laughs> you can't yeah. beat that, can you? You can't. You can't combat that. You can't argue with the maths. No, you, you know, can't. It's there, isn't it? You absolutely can't argue with the maths. You've found a Euclidean conspiracy theory yep, there. Exactly, uh. exactly. Anyway, anyway, let's crack on. So here on the Simon Dan podcast, we like to delve into the, the genesis, for want of a better word, of our guest's interest in science. So where did it all start for you? Well, I'm, I mean, I'm one of the, I suppose, a lot of people. I, I started off really interested in science when I was about 11, 12 years old. Carl Sagan's Cosmos was on. Yes. Obviously, there was David Adler. There was The Making of Mankind, uh, which was, uh, which Leakey was that? I think it was Richard Leakey did that on television. So I loved all those things. And then I kind of, as we moved towards what would have been for my generation, O-level science, for other people's generation, GCSE science, yeah. um, there was, science became almost immediately detached from the world that I could see and the sky that I could see. And I think it's a, it's a common complaint. I was talking with Carlo Rovelli about this and Carlo Rovelli said, you know, it still annoys him that there's too much education about levers and pulleys and <laughs> not, 
about the really beautiful and i mean i, I was thinking I was, I was talking to an evolutionary biologist the other day and, and she was saying you know i wasn't really taught evolution at school you're taught these kind of rather dull ideas or certainly a lot of the time yeah um which i don't blame the schools for more often than not i would blame the education ministers and we won't go into that at the moment um but that thing so so i became detached from science so i was about 24 25 years old and uh i was there's two things there was one i was in lavenham uh the well-known uh, well, I was going to say witch burning town, but of course, one of the things is actually witches were, weren't normally burnt; they were normally uh, um, hanged. But uh, Lavenham is both a real and a fictional location because fictionally, it's the main location for Witchfinder General, the uh, uh, movie with Vincent Price, where witches are burnt. And in reality, it was also where some of the the, um, the, the big kind of the, the witch trials were held. And I found a book by James Randi, Psychic Investigator. Oh, legend! Um, yeah. And that was one of the things. And then the other thing was I was on tour with Dave Gorman. Again, this was back in the kind of mid-90s. And I I just picked up a copy of uh, The Blind Watchmaker by Richard Dawkins. And those two things together... Lovely book, yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful book. And it's um, sometimes I wish he'd say less on Twitter and then people <laughs> would realise that as a science writer, he's magnificent when yeah. he goes beyond 280 characters. <laughs> yeah. um, but it is, it's a beautifully written book. And, it, yeah. and, it, and these, I think the combination of those two books really started to make me think that I had missed out on a lot when I detached from science somewhere around the age of 13. Yeah, I think you, you bang on there about the stuff being taught. I remember, I specifically remember dozing off in an naval physics class when they were talking about pendulums. Mm. Uh, 100%. What about, you, you've taught uh, A-level, is it A-level physics you've taught, Cats? Yeah, yeah, A-level physics. Do, and, um, do you find that boring to teach some of it? You know, you know what? I think I think I can make anything boring. Teach, <laughs> mate. So let's not pick on the pendulums. I can do that to any topic. I'm not discriminating against oscillation and simple harmonic motion. No. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. See, I don't believe you. I believe, looking at the background on the wall that I can see, that if anything, you'd suddenly go, "Would well, you know what? I've written a little song about neutrinos and why they pass through us." You know, seeing all those yeah. guitars, I see you as like kind of you know rock and roll evangelist. He's of, he's written uh, a lot of songs. <laughs> painted on painted <laughs> on <laughs> what, what was the one you did on what was the one you did on um chemtrails oh chemtrails on earth chemtrails on venus yeah come out of a plane and out of and then yeah yeah, something else. yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it's good yeah it's good the conspiracy theorists loved it yeah i love that one love on that the one. ukulele yeah um i mean that thing is it, just touching on that and mentioning chemtrails it is the realization that by making it about levers and pulleys and very dull things, you end up with uh, a large number of people in the population who are scientifically illiterate yes. and can therefore very easily be lured, not due to stupidity, but not by not having the correct ammunition into uh, vaccine uh, denial, into chemtrail thinking, into flat earth, into that. And that, and that is a huge issue, I think, yeah. it, it, because if you, I mean, I remember one of the things, probably even before the before the Richard Dawkins book and before, before the James Randi book, I remember, uh, I think it was a, even front page news possibly the independent back in the 90s which was about the fact that the echoes of the big bang could still be heard in the universe now that to me was astounding and yeah. it was the first time ever i would imagine somewhere in my early 20s where i started to get some kind of idea that this is a really big universe and yeah. it is filled with lots of things and that the history of the universe that, that there are many traces still there that they are not lost and you can go back 13.7 billion years and say this and and so those kind of things those stories and i know that talking to science teachers they're desperate to tell those stories yeah but 
you've got to hit that mark and you've got to hit that mark yeah, and you've got to get on. to that place yeah yeah you're, you're absolutely right and and the people some of those people that do hear that about that you can hear the echoes of the big bang and they'll say absolute nonsense and then they'll try and look for another a reason why we're getting this there and it will end up with another but we'll talk more about that in a bit so you, as you said you st- well you started initially off in comedy didn't you um and you're well known for weaving science into a lot of your shows is it difficult to write that or are you well versed enough in science to be able to do that I'm definitely not well versed enough in science, but I am obsessed by it. So yeah. I, I mean, it's it, for me. It's because I, I don't write my stand up. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to say I don't write my stand up. A homunculus appears to me. Not hang on a minute. He's not nearly as scientifically sound as we imagined. So I, but I do it all by making notes and then just going on stage and starting to talk. Yeah. And sometimes you find out there's nothing there, and sometimes you find out that there's a certain scientific ideas that are so alien to people that the amount of information that you give them it's too much for then one punchline so it's an interesting yeah. thing to find out what you can work in um but yeah that that was i mean that started about 20 years ago and i just suddenly thought these these ideas are so brilliant and if people can get some sense of sometimes I mean, the show i'm working on at the moment is predominantly about reality yeah and i yeah. think for people it is still a shock to discover that most of your brain has no idea that you exist <laughs> And that most, uh, so much of the way that we go through life, so much of what we are doing does not come from this conscious mind, you know, which I, I would vaguely say, you know, if you think of that, you know, the very front of the frontal lobes, there is this dandy fop that is you that likes to imagine that you're in charge. And that, yeah. like, once you start delving into that and people find out about blind sight, people who are consciously not able to see and yet somewhere they are still able to point wherever the light might be and just go, it must just be coincidence. All of those things, once you start unraveling those, um, you also don't have to necessarily have as many punchlines or anything like that, because one, people will laugh at how absurd yes. it is yeah. to be this complex and yet at the same time to have so many areas of our existence where we just don't really know what's going on and we're doing this amazing guesswork, which we count as of sometimes almost being objective experience. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, one of the things that I've learned over time as well is that is that passion and fascination are often as good as a really big laugh. Though I always want to get a big laugh. You know, when I, I was doing a stand-up gig last night in Northampton, 45 minutes, it was late on, the audience had been uh, drinking quite a lot by then, so I really had to be as flamboyant as possible. But I could <laughs> still sneak some things in there, Yeah. even though it was a weird night. By the time I arrived, apparently there'd been a huge argument at the bar because someone had complained that someone was burping at them. <laughs> uh, and this being Northampton, there had been some kind of oral flatulence battle which had led to uh, a tremendous amount of dis- satisfaction and then someone said to me everyone's lying by the way if you ask them what they do that man says he swims with dolphin that someone over there is involved in some kind of labrador based sex ring so it was one of those kind of weird nights um but you can still that's the thing is you can people are if you really go for it people will go all right fair enough i'll listen to a little bit about uh, the large hadron collider as well absolutely yeah love it um, but I mean, a lot of people, though, will, will know you primarily from the Infinite Monkey Cage podcast, which obviously you co-host with uh, Professor Brian Cox. How did that come about? Because you genuinely have some brilliant guests on there and you cover almost anything. Well, that I mean, that's one of the things is it's very much a small group. It's basically me, Brian and our producer, Sash. Yeah. 
and we do it all so we would normally be i'll be sending emails to people that i've met or whatever and saying hey do you want to come on our show so like for instance when we do astronaut specials one of the things is we don't go have to go through agents they're all people that yeah. somehow or other we've managed to meet at some event and you suddenly say hey rusty schweikart or uh, yeah. tim peak or helen sean do you want to come and do this and then sometimes they're a bit suspicious <laughs> uh you know and then then you lure them in um but it all came out of an accident i was involved in a pilot uh, that was done, I can't remember, was Brian was one of the presenters. Um, I think it might have been Kevin Fong and Adam Rutherford. Um, and the, I, I was just like a guest popping up and saying, you know, nonsense. And uh, and it, uh, the pilot didn't get made. And then people just went, why don't Brian and Robin do something? So it just came out of that. And then the first two series were us trying to get to the point of making the show that we wanted to make because initially there were lots of other things in it like Radio 4 them wanted there to be comedy sketches in the middle. Oh, okay. Um, it's always problematic because we have brilliant people doing them but you're halfway into talking. It, it's that fear of science. <laughs> but I mean, if this is going to be entertaining, what if it's just scientists talking? <laughs> no, we'll have to have a comedy sketch and some, you know, all of that stuff. So, um, so yeah, it just, it just came out of that. It came out of failure. So that's, you know, as, as wow. we know, with so many great ideas, yeah. they, they, they come out of, 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 uh, of failure. Yeah. Well, we, we, when we started Cats Night, I think we were so, um, I don't know what's the word. We were so naive when we started this and we lit, we had Professor Jim Al-Khalili on like the fifth episode. And I, I don't know about you cats, but I was well nervous on that one because I, because yeah, yeah. it's, you know, and we, but it was fine. It was absolutely fine. And, and, and you get used to it. And I don't know, cats does a bit of, co- well, you don't do comedy, do you? You do a little thing. I wouldn't in call the, it anything like that. Mate. Yeah, <laughs> a thing in the middle, but, um, but yeah, no, I certainly can appreciate, appreciate that. Um, you're involved with other podcasts as well, aren't you? Uh, you do one with Helen, Helen Chertsky. Um, yeah, no, I do a ridiculous. Night. I mean, especially since lockdown, I, I, yeah. I'm I'm a very impatient person with a very manic kind of frame of mind, and uh, and so I have to as much as possible. So I do every Sunday with Helen. I do uh, a live science Q and A, uh, and 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 that's great because we have different subjects each week, different kind of, of of specialists. Like the other week, we were doing the standard model of, of, of physics and talking about Stephen Weinberg, the, the great Nobel Prize winning physicist who, who who died a few weeks ago, um, and then people can just sending questions you get these great questions some people are nine years old who send in questions and, and some people are in their 80s and it's uh, nice and I, and I think the main thing is i, I mean I, I would say that science broadcasting and this is something that we battled with in terms of critically infinite monkey cage was never a darling um even when we won the sony gold we were brian and me weren't there because we were on tour but apparently <laughs> the whole room just went what that show I don't know how, yeah. even the judges didn't seem to have worked out quite how we had won and um, that thing of if you don't treat science in this hello today we're talking about science which is a very important thing and and it's like this fear of being passionate of being jokey and yet as you will know from the scientists you've spoken to you know scientists have a sense of humor they have an incredible yes. passion yeah. and curiosity they are not hugely dissimilar to when you talk about an artist who suddenly says and then i came up with this idea for this aria or i came up with the idea for this sculpture that passion is the same passion um and so I think that's that's a really important thing in terms of uh, of if, and and you once you start because Monkey Cage it's amazing how Paul Nurse who is have, have you had Paul Nurse on yet? No, we haven't. No, he's brilliant. Paul Nurse is another Nobel Prize winning scientist and and just a, a, a real his his energy is fantastic. Um, and he was really nervous beforehand, um, like oh what's going to happen because it doesn't have that structure. Yeah 
of you know most times brian and me and sash will sit down about two hours before a show and go right where do we roughly want this to go and we kind of scribble maybe 25 questions yeah and at that point we have an idea that there's kind of section a section b section c and that will of course be a fantastic narrative arc that will take you into the full history uh, of that particular part of evolutionary biology and of understanding of orangutans <laughs> and uh, of course then what happens is the first question get asked gets asked and that immediately leads to uh, going off on a tangent yeah yeah and so i think the fact that it's natural the fact that we're not and, and that's what with everything that in the same way with the stuff that i do with helen um with the stuff that I do with Josie Long and our kind of book shamble stuff, all of those things, we're aiming to have a genuine conversation, which is not a, I mean, it's interesting. I interviewed a scientist recently and I won't say it was, but it's one of the most unsatisfying conversations I've had <laughs> because it didn't matter what I asked him. He answered what he had hoped his question would be. Ah, okay. And there was no sense of connection at all. Yeah. I was merely a machine to say, tell that story, tell that story, tell that story. And that wouldn't work at all on Sunday right. Science Q&A, on Monkey Cage, on Book Shambles or anything like that. Because I, I think people, that's one of the things that people like to hear. They like to get a sense that there is a real connection and Absolutely. that this is not just a, a performative thing. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I can certainly appreciate that. And I, I mean, I, as you know, I've, I sent notes for this podcast and I, I'm like a stickler for structure, but I still... I try, we do try, don't we, cats? To we do go off on tangents quite often, don't we? On a lot of things. Oh, it happens. It's it? inevitable. You know, someone says something that you yeah. know sparks a bit of. Uh, oh, yeah. let's yeah. examine that a bit further. It happens, doesn't it? Yeah, it's great. Absolutely. And by the way, uh, I'm still waiting for an email back from Helen actually uh, about the podcast, and it, maybe it'd be nice if she replied, especially when I gave her a glowing review of her uh, storm in a teacup uh, uh, book. Uh, science, oh, well, science in the teacup book. Yeah. She's probably got good excuse, like oh, I'm no. in the Arctic. She's, yeah, she's probably immensely Which is busy. one of the strongest excuses to have. Yeah, yeah. to be <laughs> fair, it is, yeah. Um, and I must apologise, by the way, because I owe you £10 for a book on 9-11, which I stated I wanted on Instagram. Oh, yeah, you And right, I still yeah. haven't done it yet. I should do it. Uh, but you do so much stuff with books on Instagram. I, I love it. What made you decide to do that? Well, that was just partly because, again, because of lockdown, and and so much of the stuff I do is is based around books, and I have way too many books. You've got on, a lot. Um, again, yeah. because I'm, <laughs> I put up a thing on YouTube the other day, which was a ten minute guide to how I read. Because sometimes people go, "How do you read so many books?" And I go, "Because I don't read a whole book. I start a book, and then I go, oh, that that man sounds really interesting. I'm going to read about him. Oh, she sounds amazing. I'm going to read about that. Hang on a minute, that's led to me. I've got read to me to read <laughs> yeah. some yeah. about ghosts now. So I have." And, and it's one of those things that I've only just really started to deal with, which is the way that my mind works, because I think for a long period of time, I have really been trying to box it into this is how things are meant to be done. And I've, or, I mean, every time that I do a new show, you know, I normally try and do three different solo shows in a year. And, uh, and I always imagine on the first day, and this will be a very complete history of art. And of course it never is yeah. because it goes off on tangents and finding out that. And, and so, yeah, I just, and so that then led to me uh, just going, I've got too many books. I'm just going to have, I'm going to start 
selling them and I'll, and I'll make sure they're kind of cheaper than, than yeah. you can get online in, in other places. And then there's this nice thing, which is I'm, I'm, I love touring so much and I spend so much of my time, you know, after gigs, I'm normally in the bar. I don't go off. I'm normally on stage as the audience come in. I'm normally still there when they go out and I normally be in the bar. And, and I do miss all of those kind of anecdotes you get from people and that com- conversations and the connection there. And so this was a nice way of, I would, I would be selling books and people would send me things. Oh yeah. My mum came and, and saw you when, you were in Keswick and she was the one who asked that really awful question and we're still embarrassed you know all of these kind of and so it's quite nice to have a connection still with the geography around the UK while being trapped in my attic yeah absolutely and I can absolutely relate with what you said in that video about how like I will read a huge swathe of of a book and then I'll only the only thing I'll remember from it is I don't know how we sculpted dogs from wolves but 70% of it is just gone from what I've read it's so weird and once you've done that, once you've accepted that, you just have to go, right, I, I know that, you know, some people have brains that will move to a point of having expertise. Yeah. And some of us will be this flibbity gibbet creature, which is as long as you're still fascinated and you're curious, just accept that you're not going to, because some people I know, their ability to retain information is just Incredible. remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm the same as you. There, there will be something when I'm talking to someone, when I'm reading something, when I'm listening to something, there'll be a couple of things that will go in my brain. And then maybe two months later, I'll be on stage improvising, <laughs> going off on some other tangent. And that fact about how we sculpted dogs or whatever it might be will suddenly come out in yeah. some strange routine about a long haired dachshund. My, my wife often says, why do you keep a book after this? I'm like, well, I'm going to reread it again probably in about six months. That's why she's savage. She reads a book and it's on Facebook Marketplace in five minutes. Well, it's an extension it. of your brain, isn't it? Yeah. You basically, I mean, that was the hard thing of, of getting rid of books was I'm going, this feels like I'm actually doing lots of little mini lobotomies. You know, this yeah. is... The, potentially and of course each time a book would go i'd go oh the next day i've suddenly realized that's the book i need to read most yeah yeah i do that all the time um but talking about books your new book the importance of being interested is out in a couple of months is that about what it sounds like it's about i hope it is as <laughs> like everything else i mean it was ninety thousand words too long and it was only meant to be an eighty thousand word book okay um because I, I wrote it during lockdown and of course and like everything i do i'm not i can't plan it's not how my brain works so i just start writing and uh, i really hadn't realized quite how much i'd written um about 80 percent of the interviews that i did with people aren't even in the book because uh i i i found the notes that i made last march of what the book was going to be yeah. and of course only about two chapters of that actually made it through but the basic idea that part of it came from the fact that especially when i'm touring with brian uh some of the ideas really disconcert people and people yeah. sometimes about the size of the universe the death of the universe whether there is no other curious life in the universe or whether there is curious life in the universe these things can make people well give them kind of an existential anxiety so i thought well i want to write a book that's each chapter looks at something that you might feel you will lose if you examine it from a scientific perspective but actually what it gives you as an alternative like you know i I have written a chapter about religion and god and of course some people worry about if you if you read a lot of science you will lose god 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 is not really required as a hypothesis for why the universe is as it is and so that was a lot of fun and and 
obviously I interviewed scientists that I know who do believe in God and sure. what their perspective is and the fact that they felt like Carlos Frank, who is a brilliant uh, cosmologist um, working in the area of cold, dark matter. Um, I was really surprised. So I've known him for quite a while and I was listening to an interview and he said, I don't allow God into the laboratory. Yeah. And I was like, oh, is Carlos being metaphorical there? And I rang him up and he said, oh, no, 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 I do believe in God. Um, he's he's half Jewish, half, half Catholic. Uh, and he says it's the Jewish God that, that, that kind of he has a sense of. Right. And from having my discussion with him, I often say, Carlos, I'm not entirely sure this is God because he, like, he'll say, uh, he says, well, there is a possibility. He said, God started the universe and then went on holiday. Yeah. I said, for a lot of people, that won't be good enough. No. The fact he hasn't been around for the last <laughs> yeah. 13.7 billion years. And, and then I said, but, you know, the idea of, of something so complex it can, can create a universe, uh, that feels falls into the kind of Bertrand Russell argument. Yeah. And he said, well, who says God has to be complex? And I said, look, honestly, for a lot of religious people, a non-complex God that then disappeared and went on holiday is not yeah. when they're in the pews what they're it. imagining. Yeah. But yeah. it's still interesting. He has some sense. So that was what I was looking at. I looked at, really, I looked at the sense of doubt, you know, that once you are, uh, once you really get into science, you have to accept that, doubt is vital sure. and the, the certainty is gone ideological certainty you can have things which are as you know something like for instance you know the theory of evolution by natural selection that's a very very solid bit of knowledge yeah even then you just have to have a tiny little bit of doubt there as well yeah sure. to continue to exercise and so i you know wrote a chapter on that and then a chapter about the death of the universe and that that's always fun because when you talk to scientists about the death of the universe they're always very jovial they're like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. One of the, interesting <laughs> yeah. Is the big rip and i think well they're not jovial about the end of the universe i think i hope not i think they're jovial about the fact that we've reached a level of understanding yeah. that we could start to hypothesize how the universe is going but sometimes you do think you seem overly happy about the idea of the end of everything <laughs> amazing it sounds really it's a really good idea actually sounds fantastic can't wait to uh can't wait to read it anyway Kat, well, just I was so lucky i got the ch i mean also because there was a lockdown on i could get in contact with anyone yeah you know I, I I, I, a friend of mine andrea who, who works uh in kind of uh monkey research she managed to get hold of someone who knew jane goodall and so i got a oh, chance wow. to nice. dr jane goodall and yeah. that was and then brian eno pops up in the book and there's you know again a few astronauts and the odd apollo astronauts like that and it was just such an exciting i mean that was why it was so hard to get it down to 110,000 yeah. words was there's all my ramblings in it and i'm also talking to these people with incredible knowledge and trying to go oh, how can i talk about everything in the universe <laughs> Ten thousand words yeah brilliant um cats out of interest do you write in anything at the moment mate uh, you know, fully enough, I, I don't know if I've mentioned it uh, later, but I am. I am writing. Oh, yeah, well, you are. You write a textbook. Yeah. You're not yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's writing a textbook. Sorry, Robert. Every every week, uh, we, we we get a little insight into the fact that Katz is writing a textbook. So. <laughs> and drop it in. Write it on. I'm glad you asked. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's they're just uh, school textbooks for biology, chemistry, physics for schools in America. Oh, okay. And how hard do you find that in terms of, again, that bit we were talking about before where uh, I have to put this equation in because this is very much part of the, but I want to squeeze the story in because I mean, that's the great thing is it the bit that gets detached so often are the stories of those scientists and how those ideas arose 
is you, then that makes the, the equation much stickier. If you've got a little sense of, you know, it's, it's like some of the stories about Niels Bohr. And, yeah, once you get some sense of, like, yeah. there's a great quote, which I think should almost be in, in every textbook, which is, uh, who was it Niels Bohr was watching a lecture of in the 1950s? I've totally forgotten now, but it was someone who afterwards, he said, we've all been talking and we think your ideas are crazy. But are they crazy enough? And I think that when you're talking about quantum mechanics, is it crazy enough? That immediately would make those equations and those ideas like kind of, oh, I can't really shift them now because they're attached to a really exciting idea of the madness of, of what yeah. makes the universe. Well, that's, that's a great point. And what, what, what I'm, I'm trying to do is uh, I'm trying to, we have two books. We have a, a book for the students and a book for the teacher and all that stuff that's engaging that you want to read about, you want to learn about, that goes in the student book. And then it's the, for the teacher, it's just a very plain facts, you know, that they can then deliver to the kids. So the student is getting more of that. Um, so yeah, well, there you go. I'm glad you said that. That's, that's, that's our that, that's our um, our jokey version of your or the same version of your when is a strawberry dead sort of thing on this <laughs> on this podcast. We, we bring it up all the time. Uh, right, we're gonna have a short break. Uh, we're doing what's called Cat's Curiosity. This is where he brings us a piece of science news over the last week, and uh, we see what he's got. Okay, so here we go. Um, I forgot there's no jingle for that, is there? I was, no jingle for I was, that. I was no, I'm only, I've, only, one. I've only got the budget for one jingle, so. There's ne I know there's never been a jingle. I don't know why I was expecting one. <laughs> um, right, so I think we all know that the media like the idea that is, that there might not be the perfect story, but there's a perfect headline yes. for every situation. So Big how time. about this for a headline I stumbled across? Okay. Right? Woolly mammoths brought back from the dead to combat climate change. Climate change is obviously quite big at the minute. It's a good that's a brilliant headline. I'd pick that is, paper up, yeah. And it made me click on it, right? It made me click on it this week. And it took me to one of those websites where you have more adverts than you do, you know, text, one of those. That, but still, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll wade through it because it was interesting enough. Um, and it was talking about the attempts of Harvard scientists, obviously, to, to bring back uh, the woolly mammoth. And it was on a climate change page. And I think they've taken a bit of artistic license. They were genuinely <laughs> proposing... And I don't think that they quoted anyone from Harvard as, as having proposed this, but the journalist was proposing that the woolly mammoths, because they would have a lot of characteristics of the, the mammoth, they'd obviously be a, a hybrid between the uh, Asian elephant and the mammoth, that they would be able to live in these uh, very cold northern regions. And once we can repopulate those regions with woolly mammoths, they'd be able to tread so much snow into the ground um, that it would actually uh, slow down the melting of northern permafrost, wow. which will combat climate change. Uh, now, nobody was available from Harvard University to comment on using woolly mammoths to combat, uh, combat climate change. But that was a genuine article. How, I many, it quite how many bloody mammoths would you need for that? You need quite, well, apparently they, they walk around a lot. Another thing I, I found was in their lifetime, 28 years, they, they travel an average of seven kilometers a day. They can track it wow. by the, the layers on the, uh, on the, the tusks. Oh, okay. And when they go from one place to another, um, obviously the, the, the layers are always building up, but those layers then consist of different ratios of oxygen isotopes and strontium isotopes. So you can pinpoint on a map where they've been. And apparently they, they, they move around all the time or they were uh, analyzing to us. They were, they were traveling seven kilometers a day and in the lifetime they could have gone around the earth twice. Wow. So they do move around a lot. There would have been a lot of stomping on, on snow, saving, oh, okay. saving the earth. Yeah. Fascinating. There we go. That was a good one, mate. I like that. True story, bro. Yeah, true story. I love things like that because it is, as you said, that headline thing where yeah. I, I remember uh, um, the journalist or whatever, the, uh, Melanie Phillips, writing this piece saying, Richard Dawkins says it's more likely that little green men uh, made life on earth than God, right? 
uh, which I think anyway it is. Yeah. It shouldn't sound particularly surprised now. But I, I knew that the actual story of that, because I think I saw him a few weeks later, and it was like what had happened was he was pushed and he was pushed and he was pushed, and then eventually he he talked a little bit about panspermia, the idea, you know, that perhaps yeah. there are something would strike the earth, something which actually already has the potential for life on it, so life comes from other places, which of course doesn't answer very much. It merely says that life might not have started on on the planet Earth, but that was just enough to then turn it into this kind of imagine that just these little men wandering <laughs> around and like, um, and so that. I think so often, like someone in, can I just ask if there were an enormous number of woolly mammoths just treading down this? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that might brilliant. There we go. Yeah. Scientists are <laughs> yeah. working hard on bringing, you know, using finding little bits of mammoth in amber, and then yeah. we'll end up with a cane toad situation like in Australia when they introduce cane toads, and then the whole world will be taken over by woolly mammoths, and it'll all be chaos. That sounds pretty right. good. It sounds pretty <laughs> better than it is at the moment, though, isn't it? <laughs> Um, as we explain to most guests each week, Cats and myself, we spend a lot of our time fighting those pesky conspiracy theorists on YouTube. Um, do you entertain those sorts of people much or or not? It's not, not, do you know what I do is I try and look like, especially during things like COVID and with people saying, oh, the vaccine hasn't been, you know, properly gone through proper trials and things like that. I try and put things up as much as possible, which show the actual evidence-based answers yeah. to issues like that, or with climate change. Um, I don't often argue... I mean, one of the things is an argument is a pretty pointless thing a lot of times on, on social media because people don't get the tone of voice, people feel under attack. Sure, yeah. uh, it's very hard sometimes not just to mock, and, of course, mockery is not going to... So I, I try not to... And, and more often than not, I'll find that when I do get involved, I've wasted the day because it starts off with someone just kind of going, I'm just saying, I'm just being a little bit skeptical about this. And then by the end of the day, when they've got into the full thing that we've never been to the moon and no one's actually in space and there's a kind of, you know, reptilian conspiracy, you go, oh, they always start off or quite a few of them will start off in a, in a gentle manner of mild skepticism and yeah. then trying to lure you into yeah. these kind of so so I, I try not but I've just not found it useful I would and, and I think we have a problem as well which is that when we turn some of those people into personalities it elevates them it monetizes their YouTube feeds and all of these things that they're trying to do um, and, and we have to remember that some of the people at the forefront of conspiracy thinking are part of that. It's a business model yeah. and it's very crass um, and it's very cruel, I think, as well, what a lot of those people are Absolutely. doing. So I just try and put as the most accurate information I can find up. Yeah, definitely. Have you heard of a guy called Mark Steele? Uh, he, oh, yeah. yeah. Mark Steele, not that Mark Steele, yeah. of course. The 5G the, the guy. Steele, the brilliant comedian who has to go, <laughs> I'm not that Mark yeah. Steele. Yeah. Mark Steele was talking at Trafalgar Square, the most recent. Yeah, how much did they raise cats for that five G court thing? Uh, I heard from MC Two, it was about one hundred and sixty thousand pounds. Yeah, one hundred and sixty grand they raised from people to take the five G to court that it was, you know, causing COVID and all this, and and the streetlights in the UK of five G weapons and all this. One hundred and sixty grand they raised. Yeah, it's really, I have to admit, that most recent assembly at uh, Trafalgar Square was utterly grotesque. Yeah. Some of those, obviously, there was that the, the the person who, you know, basically suggesting that doctors and nurses have been complicit and that after Nuremberg trials, you know, some doctors and nurses were hanged and things. And, and it is, 
That's the insanity that I... I mean, what I find really worrying is the fact that some figures who've previously been quite mainstream in journalism and been given a lot of platforms in the yeah, mainstream press absolutely. and mainstream magazines are now doing using that language, which is to compare vaccination policy with what happened in Nazi Germany in the 1930s, is wrong on so many levels. Yeah, and weirdly enough... I think the thinking they're using is also the kind of thinking that leads to Holocaust denialism as well. So it it has really ugly clashes yeah. of ideology as well as a, a very, very dark and dismissive attitude to uh, a, a grotesque genocide. Yeah, well, we, we see a lot of the Holocaust denial stuff uh, in the Flat Earth community. We, we, th- we think the Flat Earth is a, is a, a really strong gateway conspiracy. So it, it often leads to a lot more. If you're... Um, if you're inclined to believe in conspiracy theories, Flat Earth is like the perfect one. Uh, it includes NASA, the moon landings, all of that. And then we, time and time again, we see these Flat Earthers who are relatively harmless move to the anti-vax stuff, move to the 5G stuff, uh, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. So that's why we worry so much about the Flat Earth conspiracy because of how much it leads to things that are worse. Have you had much experience with the Flat Earthers? No, again, not much. I've not. I mean, it was nice the other day. I was reading Lee McIntyre's uh, new book about how to argue with a, a, a science denier. Yeah. And I was just in the garden, and uh, my neighbour came out. And she said, "Oh, what are you reading?" I said, "I'm just reading about flat earthers." And she went, "Do they really exist?" <laughs> and uh, she's a flat earther uh, denialist. Um, oh. No, she, but she was. <laughs> and, and she just never come across it. You know, she's she's an intelligent woman who, because she doesn't spend that much time on social media or in those corners, was like, oh my god. I, I mean, I remember I was on tour, I think, with Brian Cox when it started to because of various kind of celebrities and musicians going on about yeah. it. Yeah, and it, and it was like, but yeah, uh, but you just can't. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's and as you said, of course, it's going to be a, a, a gateway because if you are able to dismiss everything that says and and it you know anyone who says you know do your own research you literally only need a friend who lives a few hundred miles away from you and two sticks in a sunny day yeah and you're already able to do your own research this is not something that and you're right and of course if if you know one as far as i can see it's very rare to meet someone who believes in an enormous conspiracy and yet the rest of their understanding is rational. Yeah. yeah, it's very different to that thing we were talking about before with religion. I think with sure. religion, with a belief in God, I know many people who are able to have some sense of a belief in God and fully believe in the theory of evolution by natural selection, to believe in the Big Bang, to believe in 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 the how vaccines, vaccination works, all of those Completely. things. But yeah. once you are able to convince your own mind that everything you observe when you look up in the sky every shadow on the moon yeah it requires dismissing things which are easily observable on a day-to-day basis and every time that i see one of those flat earthers i mean obviously you know you've seen behind the curve but it is to me one of the most important things in that and as lee mcintyre says in his book you know one of the big questions and you'll have done this to ask is what would be a big enough piece of evidence to make you stop believing in this yeah and as we see, and as we've also seen with people like James Dellingpole talking about climate change, their answer is there is no evidence that right. will because it's ideological and it is their identity. And I mean, but that bit it's, it's always this sounding bit that, that what's so depressing is some of those people in that flat earth community are pretty smart people, yeah, in terms of their ingenuity. Yeah, they are. Yeah. 
that amazing moment where you know they just keep coming up with evidence that goes this is when they do the bedford bedford level experiment basically they're yeah. of that with lasers yeah. the one that Alfred russell wallace did and when it doesn't work they go oh why doesn't our experiment work yeah, yeah. not <laughs> oh well, we're wrong the result yeah. you've got suggests the curvature of the earth yeah. well that's how we know our experiment's wrong and that's why it's not yeah. it was interesting actually yesterday when i was doing this event with with lee mcintyre there was um some of the questions we got from people were things like calling you know is it wrong to call it science denialism because science is about progress and things being proved wrong and as he said, it's like denialism is not the same as doubt. Denialism is actually saying whatever I am offered, I will refuse to believe. And then someone said, oh, but what about people would have called Lysenko a denialist and people would have called uh, Galileo a denialist. You went, no, 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 again, you've got that entirely the wrong way around because the power structure that led to Lysenko and those terrible policies in terms of agricultural policies in Russia and the things that led to Galileo being incarcerated in his own house were non-scientific power structures. Yeah whether it was Stalinism or whether it was the Catholic Church. So it's interesting how people get all of these things, you know, that whole thing. Well, they laughed at Galileo. Do you know what? Actually, I don't think that many people did laugh. The Pope was actually furious. He was not giggling at all. And a lot of scientists were going, I'm glad he said that, and I didn't. <laughs> yeah. you know, so. I love on that front how the, the, the Catholic Church, um, uh, they kind of, uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? When they, when they you know, don't, don't hold him responsible anymore. I don't oh, know. Oh yeah, Whatever they, they pardoned were. him. It yeah. was the nineteen or something, wasn't it? They yeah. they pardoned him eventually. Uh hilarious. Yeah, well, I, my favorite story about that is is the whole kind of the development of telescopes. Yeah. And uh, and the fact that it was always a pattern. Now, this is very anecdotal, what I'm going to tell you. I've read this in a couple of books, but it may well just be made up. So just so you know. But that it was always said that you can't quite see heaven. Okay. But the you know they're just in the distance then of course you know telescopes start becoming available <laughs> yeah. and, well, let's go and look at those angels then <laughs> oh, oh. they're a little bit further yeah. angels when observed actually take on a cloak of invisibility because they're very see. shy yeah. so they've moved a little bit further back yeah. we've got these radio telescopes now we're not picking up any angels oh. <laughs> <laughs> um it's, it's funny what you said about the uh what would it take for them to believe amazingly we've had a couple of flat earthers who are looking at the uh, Virgin Galactic flight. Uh, they were reviewing it. And it ended up culminating in the fact that even if they were in space, it would either be the curve of the windows or the curve of their own eyeball that would curve the, their flat Earth. Yeah, it's, it's a really... I mean, that's why we have to find the right... Pit, because there are people, I think, who can end up believing these things. And, and you know, in particular with things like you know vaccination at the moment who have been misled and are not ideologues and yes. and and have and and I think that's that's the bit in terms of arguing on the internet you can have the fun of arguing with someone who is an utter dogmatist but then you must know it's only a game yeah. and don't start to get annoyed when you're not able to convince them yeah. um but there are and, and I normally try and work that out in a couple of tweets or whatever it will be there will be a point where I'll go no, this person has no interest in knowing anything other than the picture of the world that they have. And other times someone will go, oh, but I read this thing. And you go, ah, let me tell you about it. I mean, I, I've seen yeah. it with some members of my own family where like one of my nieces would sometimes put things up on the internet go, oh my God, I've just read this news story. And I'd say, oh, that site that you've been on is not 
a uh, a proper site in any way it's driven by this actually it's you know whatever different group who are organizing yeah. it and they go oh okay and that's what i'm trying to teach my son you know who's 13 now and who spends a lot of time on on you know kind of different platforms on, on the internet and sometimes something will pop up as a little news story and trying to make sure that that level of skepticism is there and why does that story exist is you know it, it's such an important part and that's what we need to get out there more and more Absolutely. is we need to kind of sometimes curb the mockery and increase the critical thinking and just show how much more fun it is i just a flat earth you're losing all of those adventures in space you're yeah. losing all of those magnificent stories you know sometimes they're stories of exploration sometimes they're just stories of terrible attacks of diarrhea on apollo 8 you know <laughs> yeah. this is why would they even come up with that story if it didn't really happen yeah, tell you what I know. Bad that story is why don't you have terrible diarrhea what, what do, hang on look, we we're making <laughs> yeah. this up why can't we just all be heroes yeah. now you can be vomiting and having diarrhea and we're floating around and picking up the bits in apollo 8 Bloody hell! Um, you're you're like this one. We we had a guy on the podcast who who didn't believe in the moon landing, uh, and he had five photos for us, which he didn't, which he think meant that we didn't land on the moon. But he also had a website. Is what you were saying about the websites? And he 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 um he, he gave us this website, and it was a, a story on this website about something. I think it was shadows on the moon or something. And then whilst he's talking about it, Katz checks out the website. And uh, what was it you found on the website, Katz? Oh, the, the the previous headlines were Barack Obama. I think was a, a lizard man who's That's just it, yeah. divorced. His, his wife has divorced him because yeah. he's a lizard man or yeah. something. You know, he'd not even gone for. Uh, yeah, his face when we we showed him that yeah, was him. Uh, was pretty telling. Yeah, yeah. Um, your uh, I checked out your TED talk, um, and you talked about the wonder of science and nature in general, and you mentioned in it that you get a lot of complaints on your podcast. Um, I mean, you should see the amount of complaints we get, but. At any point now, when no, when no, are we at any, are we at a point now where no one can just listen or watch something and be content, or does, does everyone always have to be like, no, you're wrong, or that's not right, or whatever? Do you know what? What's interesting is that that TED talk, which was terrible, by the way. I've oh. done much better TEDx talks. I look back at that and I'm like, oh, I feel very gloomy about that one. So <laughs> anyone listening, please don't look at it. Look at the TEDx <laughs> in Dublin. That was much better. Um, and TEDx in Salford. The um, but at that point, because that was quite early on in Monkey Cage, we used to yeah. get the and it's all stopped now. We get oh, very yeah. few. You know, every now and again, someone on on some issue will start to go a little bit crazy. Um, and but overall i think most things i mean the main thing is we're listening to every conversation this is what's changed it's a bit like the sense that i think in one way it does feel very much like there are more conspiracy you know uh kind of um theorists out there now than there ever have been before yeah but in another way it's just that we're hearing conversations from people we never met um we would never have met in the past um and I think sometimes it's very easy to just go, there's no point, everyone's gone mad. And I actually think it's probably there's roughly the same level of of kind of dogmatists and conspiracy theory. It probably is a little bit more than it was before. Yeah. But more often than not now, we get through everything and and maybe they just, maybe they stopped bothering us because we were normally quite flippant in our reaction. We yeah. didn't rise to the bait. We would turn it into a joke. And that was the end of that. Yeah, good, good stuff. Um, so we want to we want to show you how serious uh, the flat earthers are. They love to call out people like Neil deGrasse Tyson and uh, your colleague Brian Cox and other prominent scientists for debates. They're always doing it. I personally don't debate them mainly because it annoys them. But Katz has had a few battles with them as well. But we'd like to show you just uh, and and the people at home who don't know just how serious and stubborn they are. 
And that's what we're going to do as we play Flat Earth Dust Up. Right, I, I said I didn't have enough... Um, uh, I didn't have enough budget for a jingle, so there's no jingle for this one, I'm afraid. Uh, so using your background in science, I'm going to invite you to give some globe evidence and cats will respond as a typical flat earther and how a flat earther would using science that is in existence as well as their own made up science. And we'll just show you how difficult and slimy they are. Right. Well, I suppose the obvious one to start with is, uh, um, in fact, my sister just rang now and my sister lives in Tasmania and it's uh, night. And at the time that we're actually recording this, it's fully daylight. It's lunchtime here yep. in the UK and she was about to go to bed in uh, Tasmania. So what's all that about then? Yeah, but you're pre-assuming that the Earth is a globe and pre-assuming that where your sister is, she's on a side of the planet that can't be seen. You're pre-assuming that could work on any shape of planet you've just presupposed the globe and then and then use that to affirm your your bias but how is it so so why is it dark where she is and it's uh the middle of the day where i am so it's the middle of the night uh, i know that she was saying i'm just going to bed the sun's gone down here so the sun so how does the sun go down when it's 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 a it's it's a flat earth well it reaches the vanishing point now the vanishing point is where we have uh the limited diffraction or the limit of diffraction um which causes something to disappear bottom up because the angle between the sun and the ground gets so small it's below the Rayleigh criterion so your eye cannot resolve it anymore so hang on can you just tell me so, so that that seems to require an incredible distance that is a lot more so if i was for instance flying to australia um then uh, and that's enough we'll, we'll deal later on with the, the change that when i'm when i'm on a flight is, is that is that also diffraction with the fact that i will be moving into darkness of night a lot quicker quite often if i if i'm if i'm flying on a plane than if i was just remaining where i was is that also down to uh the diffraction element well, again, you're invoking models there, aren't you? You're invoking what you're invoking the model of a globe Earth or a presupposed shape of a flat Earth that I've got to now describe how those phenomena work. The fact is, we don't know. So, the, so how far is, in, in fact, in reality, how far is London to Sydney? Because for for that change in in the light from the daylight to the nighttime and for on, on a flat surface with a sun i mean where do, does the sun just move in a line uh where does the sun actually go in terms of does it go back and forth in a line is that also moving in a, in a, in a plane in a straight line rather than as we previously supposed uh that we were kind of going round it is that not how it's it's working because are, are we moving or is the sun moving but we don't really know what the luminaries are and you know, imagine uh, an optical phenomena like a rainbow, which appears in a different position for all observers. Yet we know it's all there. It could be something like that. So we just we just don't know. So you can't rely on visual phenomena and observations um, to to determine the shape of the Earth when you're looking at the sun, um, unless you can prove it's a tangible substance. Unless you can prove it can be touched and measured. And tell me how far away it is. Do Do we know why the Earth ended up being flat? whereas uh, the other planets that we can observe uh, from a telescope and also the other celestial objects uh, do not appear to be flat. Well, we, we don't claim uh, at all to know the dimensions of anything. We're intellectually honest about that. We don't know it. Um, <laughs> but what we do know is that water lies level. And if you've got water here, why should it change its behaviour over a long 
uh, a, a huge space. We don't know. So again, you're invoking models and ideas of gravity and, and all sorts. All we're saying is our observations tell us it's stationary and flat. So well, we don't I, know. I suppose I'm not invoking a model so much there as actually the if, if I get my telescope out and I start to look at things and I look at the moon and I, and then I look at some of the other planets as well, maybe Saturn and the rings of Saturn, um, that they do not appear to be flat from actual observation. So do we know why, what it would have been, what, what led to, to our planet being a flat planet? Well, listen, if you go into my sock drawer, you'll see that all the socks in my drawer are black. Right? That doesn't mean that the socks I've got on my feet are black. Um, I mean, they are black, <laughs> but, but they wouldn't have to be black. This one could be a white one. So you're using that same kind of logic. Oh, no, I suppose. No, I'm just interested because, it, I mean, because we've got such a lot of kind of, uh, of theories and testable theories in terms of uh, the shape that I, I presumed, if you're going to be really wedded to the idea of a flat Earth, um, that you would also have some theory as to why this planet, unlike the other planets, would have taken a shape which is entirely different to all the other celestial objects that we're able right. to observe uh, through telescopes. Because that seems very odd, because if we, we look around our solar system and, and we see that every other planet uh, has not taken on the, uh, a, a flat form, and yet we have. And, and, and I thought you must have come up with a, some theory, some scientific theory as to why that would have, have occurred. Well, you simply can't determine anything about the ground you stood on by looking at the sky. And also, we don't know what those luminaries are. They could be, they could be absolutely anything. But how do we know the round? How do you know they're not a disc? Well, I suppose that when we've actually in, in various different projects involving Voyager and Cassini and things like that, so uh, so when those when those images that have been taken and those observations have been taken, we 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 do know from the journeys of those uh, vehicles that those objects that we've observed are round, as well as just being able to actually see that they're round through telescopes. Hit, hit, right. So hit, you're appealing to us. Oh, sorry. Go on down. I was going to say hit, <laughs> hit him with the thermodynamics. <laughs> Well, you know, you're invoking space there and the idea of space. A, you've never been to space, but B, space is a violation of the second law of thermodynamics <laughs> because the law of entropy says that gas can move from areas of high pressure to low pressure. So how do we have an atmosphere next to the vacuum of space? You can't have these probes in imaginary space because it's a violation of the second law of thermodynamics. Game over, my drop. Okay, so, so the main thing is that you just don't answer anything ever and just say we that don't That is know. exactly it. So there, that, was a, that was a really good... In, so... They are slippery. Uh, they like to use science. They make their own science up. So all the stuff with the diffraction limit and stuff, they've made up a lot of that stuff, haven't they, Cats? Everything I said there, and I'm not lying to you, everything I said there is an argument that we've heard from flat earthers. I didn't make any of that up. No. That's stuff that we just hear so often. Um, you know, that yeah, so that's that's why it was so that's, off my that's head. That's the thing that I find, I mean, that's you've explained exactly why I don't argue with yeah. uh, a, a lot of groups like that is, is because it is it's because every time that you take their argument that they use to justify this particular object it never works if you move it into the next stage or yeah. towards another planet it always has to be well we don't know yeah and it just seems to have happened here i mean i i really i still can't get my head around it because it requires such a leap and and it i mean it does it does worry me into i think there is a line where you go this is insanity this is a level of delusion and that's the bit that worries me yeah is 
I think that level of delusional thinking that you see, um, and you know, we've seen some terrible things happen, and we've seen that, yeah, because that that level of delusional thinking can lead to once. I mean, I, I think in particular of things like the Parkland shootings, and I think of the, you know, some of those people who have. Uh, um, believe that because it's all just kind of you know crisis actors and you you have people whose children have been murdered who are dealing with a deluge of hate mail yeah. saying that they are crisis and and at that point of losing contact with the possibility of reality it becomes something which is deeply disturbing for what how you can manipulate for instance an electorate once you have enough, that, and, and I think this thinking has got very mainstream. That's the one thing that disturbs me. And again, it might have always been there. If I go back and I look at politics in the, throughout the 20th century, I'm sure there were you know, politicians. Who are, but when you see some of the things that are being peddled, and when you see the way that conspiracy thinking is used in the mainstream, that you've, you've, we've seen it in Westminster, we've seen it in, uh, in, in, in Washington, you see it in, I mean, it was great to see in the Australian Parliament the other day, one of uh, the MPs just standing up and uh, he's a doctor and saying we need to we cannot have people in this house mm. peddling the kind of conspiracy theories about covid that are going out that yeah. once you have people on that level using it for political advantage it, it is uh yeah that's where it gets that's where the propaganda model of conspiracy yeah. thinking becomes troubling absolutely it's like the u.s congressman who, who brought a snowball into the house of congress didn't he he just said well, climate change what are you on about <laughs> yeah that's uh <clears throat> yeah um, right, so anyway, what we're going to do now is we're going to play our proper game. This is the game that we always play at the end. Uh, this is called the Scientist Game. Now, it's 2-2. Two -two. It's Cats versus the Guest. Cats uh, uh, was 2-1 up, but he lost last week. Uh, so basically, the aim of the game is I'm going to start reading some facts about a scientist in chronological order, and the oh, first God. side to correctly guess the scientist wins the point. Oh, I'm rubbish at these games. Uh, well, I've got to be honest. If no Can one I... gets it today, then we may as well pack up and go home. Okay. Okay. So honestly, if no well, one do you know what it's nice to say that because in the situation we're at, we can pack up. We don't have to go anywhere because we're all broadcasting yeah. at home. So Good point. It's nice that at least our failure doesn't require a journey. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. This time I have got the music. Here we go. Born in 1879. 1896 begins studying at Zurich Polytechnic. That's Einstein, isn't it? Hey, he's got it. He's got it. Well done. The second clue. I was in your 1879. I was like, hang on a minute. Let's quickly go through someone yeah. else who's... Uh, <laughs> that's, that's a relief. Oh, cats. He's down. He's 3 two You know down. what? You threw me because when you said that, when you said if no one gets it today, I was just waiting <laughs> for you to say born in 1968. I was like, break up. Yeah. That would have been too obvious. Do you know what? I, I, thought, I thought, do you know what? Let me try and find a scientist who's born the same year as Cox, and then we can use that one. And that I thought, no, no, I thought we'll go but down. As this. you know, he wasn't really born in 1968. That is merely the cover story. He was actually 88. Like Highlander. <laughs> he had been travelling through time. Yeah. Eventually, there will be only one physicist as yeah. he destroys all of the others. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, anyway, Robin, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Uh, we could have done that debate thing for about an hour, I reckon. Uh, that was it's brilliant. It's really fast. I mean, that's the thing that's so fast. I mean, this is the bit of... of, of 
watching how because that's what i found in the last year because i've had more time and i've been online sometimes and i've watched how these things play out and it's fascinating to see how cognitive dissonance how many ways you have to keep changing i mean as you know from the arguments more often than not the moment you get on solid ground they go but what about and you go well hang on a minute we haven't dealt with this yet we, we and, and the media, the argument has to move somewhere else, and it will. And unfortunately, it's something we see in journalism a lot. You know, in journalism, you will see columnists who will write a, a column that says, "Here is the truth," and then a week later, they write a column that is totally contradictory. <laughs> but yeah. at no point do they acknowledge that. So it is that kind of again going back to Stalin. It's it's that constant Stalinist rewriting of the beliefs and what you said and what you did. And that's the bit which, again, is really disconcerting for me. Yeah. But yeah, I'm glad that you're doing it and I'm generally just, I'm, I'm watching. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we do enjoy it, I think. Don't we, we enjoy it, Cats? You enjoy it? It's, it's, uh, it passes the time on a yeah. rainy day, doesn't it? Yeah. It passes it's, the time. We, we do all right, yeah. Um, anyway, we're done. Thank you so much again, Robin. I uh, really you appreciate so you joining us. Uh, next week uh, is a week off because I'm taking the family away on holiday. But after that, we've got Philip Platt, who is the presenter of Crash Course Astronomy. So that should be a good one. Uh, I'll try and get some obscure astronomer for guest of scientists, uh, and then you'll lose another point. Uh, that's it. We're done. Thanks very much. Have a great week. Look after yourselves. See you all soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye.